Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your power with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteousness flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastland render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor who, and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and he saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land, on the tops of mountains where it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, and his fame continue long as the sun. May people blessed in him, and all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the God, the God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Troy Albee, and uh, I'm the pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church down in Hanover, Massachusetts. Uh, some of you know me, some of you don't. It's probably been uh, upwards of 12 years ago that uh, our family moved here from the south. I still haven't lost the accent. And, uh, and this morning, uh, we maybe Pastor Drake last week mentioned this, but we're kind of switching uh, pulpits. Uh, Pastor Drake is preaching down for us, and, and I'm here. And I'll be back in two weeks, and it's a treat to be here. Many of you I know, uh, many of you I, I don't know. And uh, that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, we were brought here because of Christ the King, a newly formed church planting uh, network 12 years ago. And uh, we have been worshiping as a church. And so uh, I bring a, a hearty... Uh, I bring a hearty thank you to a host of, of folks worshiping on the South Shore, thanks to the leadership uh, and the sacrifice of this particular congregation who cared about a healthy church, which is a multiplying church. And uh, we are a church plant of, of Christ the King, and we uh, give praise to God that there's you know, over 120 souls worshiping down on the South Shore. I, I counted last week because I baptized my 100th uh, person as a Presbyterian minister of 20 years, and 65, 70 of those have been down on the South Shore uh, thanks to the investment of this congregation and the work of God's Spirit. Uh, we praise God that uh, children and uh, adults have been baptized and people are, are walking with Christ. And so... Uh, all praise be uh, to him. Please do turn, uh, open the Bible up to Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is uh, where we're going to give attention. Uh, this is the, the season of Advent. Of course, we've already referenced that, a season where we're anticipating the coming, and there's a longing during the, that time. Uh, and of course, 
the people of God prior to this, the, the Hebrew people were anticipating a Messiah. They're longing for the first coming of Christ. They don't know that that's actually going to be two different events. Uh, ultimately, we now look back and, uh, and they were looking forward. We're looking forward too, uh, also, because we are a people who are anticipating, longing for uh, Christ's second coming. We're looking back to his arrival, but also to when he returns to make, as we said at the beginning of the service, uh, all things new, uh, including, we said at the beginning, it was, it was, it was printed there, including us. Uh, that is, is good news. Hopefully you're longing for something. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not thinking about whatever gadget you got on you know, Cyber Monday, we're longing for something because, frankly, the world is not right. I, I like to state the obvious. The world is, our culture and the world is not the way it's supposed to be. In fact, if your life's ambition was to be a conspiracy theorist, it's a great time to be alive, isn't it? It's a great time. Things are messed up. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. Even this past week, I was reading uh, a news article about protesters in China uh, speaking of how, you know, they, they don't, they're, they're, there's this unrest and they're upset. And, they, and one, of the, one of the people that was interviewed said, uh, we don't need a ruler or a king. We need our votes. And, and I get that. You know, we get that. We appreciate the fact that we live in a country where there's democracy, a, a form of government that is by the people and for the people. And when those principles are followed, we think, at least in a fallen world, this is, you know, this is the best that we can hope for. And so, I, I, sorry, I'm getting into the political science major part of me, but uh, if the best form of government wouldn't, if in a fallen world, the world like we live in, it is, in many ways, democracy. Arguably, you may have a different view, but uh, ultimately, what I would suggest, and maybe you would disagree, that the greatest form of government would be for us to have a benevolent dictatorship. Imagine this, right? Someone who has not limited power, but complete and ultimate power as a monarch to rule and to reign in such a way. But, 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 but to distinguish that, it would be a benevolent ruler and king who has everyone's best interest in mind, who rules with justice perfectly and properly at all times, that everyone flourishes under a king. We truly do need a king. We're going to consider this psalm because it conveys a longing and a prayer for a perfect king. The psalm, by the way, is, is a song and it's a prayer that presumably King David would have written. Of course, verse 20, if you have the text open, you see this concludes the prayers and songs of David because he's preparing these things. He's looking to his son, who would have been one of the many sons that he had, that Solomon would come and take the throne and be the next. There was a promise that the line of David, King David would say, you know, ultimately there would be coming from him this great uh, king. And so he has in view, uh, sometimes it's even even printed there of or for Solomon and so that was his you know his next in line of course in the end uh, everybody thinks their parent every parent thinks their child is above average or at least slightly above average mine were just average um, we have four children two are for sale um, but everyone thinks their child is slightly above average on, on a given day and and you read this psalm and you think come on man your kid can't be this good I mean this is way way this really is just way out there and ultimately we know that King David himself is the greatest king in the history of the Hebrew people he and Solomon both were were flawed and and had you know epic failures of of uh of sad proportion, and ultimately we know that this is going to find its fulfillment, a prayer and a promise, a hope, a song for a king that is yet to come, who is Messiah, who is King uh, Jesus, Christ the King. We're, 
we're focused this month, uh, both Pastor Drake and myself, on passages that echo the themes that are sung. And come thou long expected, Jesus, the great uh, carol. In that we sing, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Do you believe that? If you were to sing it, sometimes you sing and you don't really mean it. I do. And, uh, but if you were really lean in and say, this is what I believe, this is what I'm singing and it reflects my own heart, Think of the language here. There's an all-sufficiency in eternity. There's a throne. There's a, a reign. And we think Jesus, meek and mild, baby Jesus, great. But when Jesus does ascend the throne, then things become a bit more controversial. It's difficult for us at times to swallow. Jesus claims all these audacious things to be a savior, to be a, a king, a redeemer. And I think it's fairly safe to assume that along the way, the sentiment is from Christ Jesus of Nazareth. Look, look, however you feel about me, love me or hate me, but for God's sake, and I mean that, don't just tolerate me. So maybe that's the tension that we should feel this morning. Are we tolerating Jesus? Are you open to being persuaded that there is something, even as you come to a church ironically named Christ the King? Are we persuaded that he would be that authority who rules? Even, even poetically here as the Hebrew uh, is, is written, it portrays a king who is rich in authority and mercy. I've got four questions that I want to use to unpack this text in Psalm 72. The first is, who is this king? The second is, is how does he reign or rule? The third is, why do we not want this king, if we're going to have an honest moment? And then the last question is, how do we respond? Right? It's, it's kind of working out some application. If this is the king that reigns this way, how would we respond? Who is this king? Well, King David uh, here is boldly praying for a king to come. And the reason he's bold about it is because it's according to a covenant promise. It was 2 Samuel chapter 7 where it was promised to David that his line, that his dynasty, that from him would come a king that would reign on the throne eternal. That this would be something that is a, a, a a fulfillment of a promise that was made to Abraham, and it would be for all the peoples and ultimately for all the nations, showing forth love and blessings. All that's echoed here. God is, is, is making good on a promise. The reason that David also prays isn't just because of the covenant, but because of the curse that he prays so boldly for a perfect king. Uh, because if you look at the language here in, in Psalm 72, you, think, you see things like poverty, uh, verse 4, enemies, verse 9, oppression that is in verse 14, even violence. Many Hebrew scholars would say this is something of an implicit, not an explicit, messianic psalm. Psalms that look beyond, psalms that ultimately point to uh, a Messiah, and this is one that is not explicit. I'll give you an example of one that is, Psalm 22. It's Jesus himself. The Gospels record it when he's on the cross. What does Jesus say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't say, and I quote, Psalm 22. He just takes it on his lips, and he's bringing forth uh, you know, the echoes of the inspired text of the Psalter. But here, this is not the case. There's no uh, explicit point at which this is mentioned and referenced in the New Testament. <clears throat> Excuse me. But when we read the language of Psalm 72, we think, 
wow, this is, this is profound. I mean, this is a, a powerful, beautiful king. This must be Jesus ultimately in view. But unfortunately, our rebellion and our, our sin uh, brings us to a dark place. At times we live in a dark world, even our own hearts are dark. We need the light of the hope that Jesus can uniquely bring. Even the king here, listed in verse 2, is the one who judges uh, with justice and righteousness. This is a king that, uh, verse 6 says, showers down something, and we like that. It's, it's mercy. Why do we hope for a, a perfect and final king uh, to come someday? Because every other king disappoints. Every other monarch, monarch would fail us. That's why uh, some of you would say exactly, precisely, that's why I trust in myself. Can I ask you how that's working for you, right? Can I ask you, are you consistent? Are you, are, you, are, you, are you a person who is at all times under all circumstances filled with wisdom? We don't rule even our own lives that well, let alone think we can control others. Even King David, King David, with all of his expertise, with all of his triumph as a, as a military leader, there's still, you, you read this, we know that he has great flaws, as I mentioned, but really, to answer the question, when you read Psalm 72, who is like this king, the answer is rather short and simple. No one. There is no one like this king, perfect in justice and peace, Flourishing, everything that he does, it follows with this, his lordship, it follows flourishing. Look at verse 7. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. You see, even the sun further down in verse 17 that is mentioned, may his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. Speaking of the sun, if you think about horizons, uh, you know, the the way that prophecy is fulfilled in Scripture sometimes is with multiple horizons. Sometimes there's an immediate and an obvious, which is he's praying for Solomon, his son, the next king. But there's some, someone in view that is immediate, that is distant, that is much, much greater. And that, of course, we know is what comes with Jesus. There's the inauguration of Christ as king because of when he enters into space and time and he demonstrates his power over nature and evil and casting out demons, but we're waiting for a final consummation of his kingdom, which is not yet. One scholar commented, no king in Israel's history ever matched the ideal, but the hope for one never died. Let me say that again. In Israel's history, no king in Israel's history ever matched the ideal, but the hope of one never died. As Christians, we affirm the life-giving power of Jesus and his concern for the poor and oppressed, and before him every knee should bow. Jesus is the perfect king described and prayed for, David's greater son, son that we just were singing of. It does make sense, of course, that that's why in the weeks to come, we're going to be reading about the genealogy of Jesus, who is a descendant of David. And ultimately, as inspired by God, the Apostle Paul says and writes in Philippians 2, therefore God has exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the kind of king. This is the king that we long for. How does he reign? How does this king reign? Two ways. 
from our text, it begins somewhere and it drives somewhere. It begins with poverty and it ends up in glory. He begins in poverty. You can think of this as something way beyond anything that we could ever experience in human poverty because God, the God-man, Jesus takes on flesh. The humiliation of the incarnation, he comes to identify with our low estate. It's a sad estate. It's a sad estate when a woman uh, who, is, who is pregnant and giving birth and in labor can't even find but a stable to uh, bear this child, to birth the child. That marked only the beginning of his life, but it also marked the entirety of his life. He had no place to even so much as lay his head. Though he, God, became very needy, and by that I mean that he identified with every stage of our trials and temptations and our need in human experience, we know that with him we find compassion and empathy because of the way that he identified. But he carries that even further, even to the most absolute place of humiliation, which would have been death on a Roman cross. Talk about poverty. The Apostle Paul, again, echoes this in 2 Corinthians Chapter 8, for you know by the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he, Jesus, who was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. So that's where Jesus begins in poverty, the way that he reigns, but he ends up ultimately because of the resurrection, that's where it begins with glory. When every other official assumes office, and we, we've seen this, we're, we just went through a whole cycle, there's promises and there's hopes and there's plans and policies. But ultimately, at the end of the day, at best, it's temporary. It cannot be permanent. But this is a king, as described, who reigns endlessly. Look at, at the text. You can see it. He endures like the sun and the moon. You see it in verse 5, verse 7, verse 17. It goes on and on. Verse 19. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Doesn't always feel like that, that Jesus is king. Christ the king, Christ the king, Christ the king. But sometimes you feel like we're on the losing team. And, and where is Christ reigning and where does his rule? Well, I want to encourage and, 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 and speak of the kingdom that is growing, especially in the southern hemisphere and in the, in the east where thousands and thousands, tens of thousands are coming to Christ. Five, some estimate 500 churches are being planted around the world. What a glorious thought each day. New people being baptized. Well, my third question is this, why do we not like this king? And I mean by this king, the one who's outlined so perfectly and prayed for in Psalm 72. With all the references here to flourishing and peace and justice and righteousness, notice that there's not a single mention to freedom. There's authority, there's power, even, even the people in neighboring countries, it's mentioned there in verse 10, bow down in verse 9. Verse 11, it says, may all the kings bow down. All the nations serve him. The reason we don't like this king, moreover, the reason that we hate this king is because he has the liberty, moreover, the authority to rule and to reign over every single area of your life and mine. If we're truly honest, we want our autonomy. We, we humans by nature are sinful. We don't. We resist the rule and the reign of a king. 
even a good king, a wise king, a perfect king here. You may say, no, 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 no. Most people in the world actually do believe in God and don't reject and hate God. And that might be true. It probably is. You are correct. No one has a a, a struggle or a problem with the concept of God. The problem that we have, to be clear, is that we resist the true God outlined in Scripture because he comes with righteousness and justice and he says, you shall have no other gods before me. He's the king who comes and he says, you are not to harbor bitterness and resentment towards others, not even your enemies. You're supposed to love mercy. You're supposed to love your enemies. This is a king, this is a king who comes and he says, I want you to follow me, and by that, you will have to pursue purity sexually. You will have to give generously. You will have to live selflessly. That's when we don't like a king like this. That's when we struggle. You know, another reason we don't like a king like this is because he cares way too much for the needy and the poor. And we, we don't identify, we don't see ourselves in that camp. So often we perceive ourselves as strong and sufficient and, and worthy. And if we have prosperity or, or privilege, we, we thank ourselves. We say, look at what I've accomplished. Even in subtle ways, we acknowledge that we're bad, but hey, at least I'm not as bad as, you know, Larry down the street. Sorry to anybody here, Larry, but you get the picture, hopefully. I'm not that needy. We don't like a king who tells us we're needy. So how do we respond? Last question. This is by way, hopefully, of some application, practical ways to live this out. How would we respond to a king who's like this, so perfect, in Psalm 72? One thing we'd have to do is we'd have to acknowledge that we are needy and that we are an enemy of this king. Acknowledging our sinful resistance to the lordship of Christ. Do you see it? Do you see it in your own experience? And I don't know where it comes from. Well, I do, but I mean, for you in particular, maybe it is that you would find refuge in another ruler. It might be hidden in certain subtle ways of skepticism and doubt, or maybe it's just in selfish living. I don't know for you, but Pastor Tim Keller puts it best when he says, the only way to be friends with the king, this king, is to admit that you are his enemy. And frankly, Christians, only Christians can see and admit this. So if you don't admit that you are by nature an enemy, then you really are an enemy of this king. So we acknowledge that we are, are needy, as verse 12 and verse 13 says. He delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. Now, with our Western capitalist sensibilities, we frown upon this. There's nothing noble about being poor. And perhaps that's true, but there's something horrible about being proud. Asserting ourselves as being independent and superior and self-sufficient is ugly. It doesn't smell well and good. This perfect king prefers people who, regardless of their economic standing, understands themselves as having a great, great need for mercy and for 
forgiveness. That's why the Lord Jesus, if you go and open Matthew 5 at the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. How else might we respond to this king? Well, I think that we should serve him with full obedience and surrender. Not not partial, but full obedience in every area and in every respect to his kingship. One of my favorite authors, Elizabeth Elliot, uh, writes in one of her books a story uh, of a tale of the old world of a beggar. In the old world, this beggar had uh, been sitting by the street side and collected some coins and had upwards of 20 or 30 coins in his pouch. And the king rides along and, uh, and he says, please give me all of your money. And, uh, and the beggar uh, reaches into his pocket and pulls out uh, two copper coins and uh, the king turns around and gives him two diamonds. What do you think the beggar was saying after he left, you know? I, I wish I had given him. This can be participatory, you know. I wish that I had given him all of it, everything. Is there something? I mean, he owns it all. We're just stewards. We're managers. Whatever time you have, whatever resources you have, the way that you have a schedule, it, it, it is his. To honor him in full obedience and surrender. The third thing I would say is to advocate for the king's virtues. If you read a psalm like this and you see the way that they should govern, you should say, the king has virtues and I want to be a peacemaker. I want to be someone who, who prays for our government, not just complains about it. That's pretty easy to do but to actually pray in sincere prayer, to show concern, to be genuinely genuinely compassionate towards the poor and the oppressed and the needy. And this can take on many faces and facets. And if you pray with love and discernment, it will happen that God will put people in your lives. Maybe they're already there. But I'll guarantee that the expression of that, if you're surrendered to the king and you yourself have stepped down from the throne of trying to control your life and the appearance that you have, that God will make it a beautiful thing in the context of relationship and a way that honors him. 1 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul writes, First of all, then I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we would advocate for the virtues of this king. The last thing I would say in response is that we should worship him in adoration. After all, that's what all the nations will do. It'd be better to do it earlier than later. But verse 11 in our text says, May all the kings... Literally every nation, every person in high place bow down before him and serve him. Verse 18 says that it's alone. Then it is set aside worship as you might imagine it with this, the rites and the rituals and the things that we would do with stained glass or crosses. To worship is something that we naturally do when we attribute joy and value and meaning to things possessions that we have, possessions that we want 
to have and to hold. It could be food. It could be gadgets. It could be a relationship or, or money, something that we long for above and before our maker who is our king. You know, there's always nostalgia in December, right? And, and we, we travel in our mind and we think, I, I remember years ago in a book that Cornelius Plantiga, a theologian, wrote called The World is, it's, it's a book on sin, but the subtitle is The World is Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And in there he writes, we want to be reunited with a happy time or a lovely place or a good friend. We keep wanting to get back or get in. What's remarkable is that those longings are unfulfillable. We may want a good career or family or a particular kind of life. And these things may come to us. But if so, they will not fill all our Niches because we want more than these things can give. Even if we fall deeply in love and marry another human being, we discover that our spiritual and sexual oneness isn't final. It's wonderful, but it isn't final. It kind of echoes, right? It, it echoes to the, the famous C.S. Lewis quote in The Weight of Glory when he talks about this. He's critiquing the the, 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 the Stoics and their philosophy that says your desire is bad, he goes on to talk about how the gospel and Christianity has promised us so much and so many rich blessings that the problem is that our desire isn't too strong but rather too weak. That famous quote when he writes in Weight of Glory, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday, a vacation by the sea. We are far too easily pleased, Lewis writes. So therein lies our problem. We don't long for a perfect heavenly King Jesus because we are proud. We don't see any need. We're self-satisfied. We're preoccupied. We're medicated. We're entertained. Temporarily, we're fooled. That there can't, we can't imagine that there would be more. How does that happen? Well, how many of you own a minivan? I saw a lot of kids up here. Some of you probably own a minivan. I do. It's got over 100,000 miles. And it has the minivan smell. Do you know what the minivan smell is? Let me tell you. It's the exact antithesis of the new car smell. I've got a truck. It's got about 2,000 miles on it. And i got a minivan. It's got about 130. It's got the minivan smell. Do I smell it? Oh, no. No, I don't smell the minivan smell anymore. Ever since I had little kids, I, don't, I just don't even smell. People get in our van, they smell the minivan smell. That's right. But I don't. And neither does my wife and probably not my kids. Definitely not my kids. It's because our olfactory is so saturated with that smell, I don't smell it anymore. So why am I going there? Some of you are thinking about a new car. And I'm trying to get us to see that there's something in our vision that is something in our gaze, something in our affections that is so saturated that we're not able to see King Jesus in all of his glory.
Our vision, our outlook at times is so preoccupied with the things of the creation and creatures that we can't see the creator. It's a risky place to be that we might fail to see the glory of the beauty of the relevancy of the supremacy of Jesus and worship him. So, let's accept that we're enemies. Let's surrender wholeheartedly, fully in obedience to this king. Let's worship him in adoration. Let's advocate for the king's virtues. You know, this season we wrestle with the mystery of faith. Like other times, we wrestle with an invitation to forsake our pride and our sin and exchange it for his free grace. We relinquish our love, our own autonomy, our own control, and surrender to a king. We stop worshiping money and dreams and sports, not only because they can't ultimately satisfy us, but because it's idolatry. And verse 18 in Psalm 72 said, he alone, he alone, he alone is king. Would you pray with me? Lord, let us see more of all this in our personal lives, in our family, in our community, where there is indeed injustice and there is disobedience. Let there be repentance, and Lord, let it begin uh, with us. May we be peacemakers. We pray even now for leaders in our country at every level, from our president down to legislatures, to the judicial system. Lord, we pray for local government, for newly elected leaders, those who serve the law and policy. We pray you'd give them wisdom. Lord, we pray for your return when you will make all things right and new with glory and peace and justice. Please come back. And as we wait, Lord, would you make us a people who are more obedient, who are more loving, who are more committed to peace and reconciliation as we fix our eyes on Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.